Thanks for listening to this week's sermon from Epicos Church in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. For more information about Epicos, please visit epicos.org. Yes, well, good morning, Epicos. Oh, it is good to be with you. My name is Mark. In case uh, you are new here, uh, it's great to be, uh, great to be yeah, one of the pastors on staff and just a part of all that God is doing. And so we are so thankful that God is moving through people like, uh, like Drew here to just to step in like that, that we can praise God for how God is moving him. And we are hiring. <laughs> so if you know of somebody who may be looking into ministry, please please uh, forward them to our website or get them in contact with us uh, so that we can start that process. Several positions uh, that we are looking for. Uh, well, as, as uh, Tommy was saying, we are starting a new series today, walking through 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. Before we do that, I just uh, wanted to say one more thing here, and that is uh, earlier this week, earlier this week, uh, Pastor Jacob and I went to the Dominican Republic, and no, we didn't go there on vacation. Um, we went there because we have this new partnership with, with Mission of Hope. Mission of Hope is a wonderful organization, Christ-centered organization that started in Haiti serving Haitians. And over the decades, uh, they have built a wonderful ministry. They feed over 130,000 uh, children every single day. Isn't that amazing? Uh, they have an entire uh, arm of ministry empowering women in Haiti, uh, as well as education, medical, uh, coming around the local church, uh, local pastors specifically, equipping them. And so really looking forward to just what our, our partnership looks like moving forward. For those of you that make keep up with uh, news, you know that Haiti's closed. And so the Americans uh, had to leave Haiti, but to, to God's glory and to Mission of Hope's credit, they uh, had done such a good job of training Haitians to do ministry that when the Americans were pulled out, uh, Haitians uh, kept ministry going and they've actually seen ministry thrive, flourish, and grow under the crazy crisis that is happening right now in Haiti. And so looking forward to when Haiti is not locked down and when we can get back into Haiti, but they started moving over to the Dominican side of the island and serving Haitians in the Dominican. And so uh, there's a few more conversations that need to happen behind the scenes, but I do want to uh, let you know and hopefully get you excited about the fact that we will be taking trips down to down to the Dominican as early as this year, later this year, to serve. And it's just so encouraging when you see uh, somebody who just has much less than you do, and yet far more passion. And it's just humbling to see these pastors and to meet with these pastors, and you're sitting in a room that is their church. You know, we complain about like a microphone that sits weird on your face all service or something like that. And it's just like, this is so humbling. And it's so encouraging. So we're excited about that. Hopefully you get excited about that too. And we're able to share more, share more very soon. Here's the thing, whether you're in Haiti, whether you're in Dominican or whether you're in Milwaukee, it is not easy. It is not easy to walk the way of Jesus. And so maybe you have surrounded yourself in like this Christian bubble uh, and you have Christian friends, Christian community, and it's all Christian, 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 Christian. You live in yourself this kind of like ecosystem of Christianity, this Christian bubble. It's still not easy to walk the way of Jesus because it can be very easy to become legalistic. 
And all of a sudden, you're worried about appearing that you're walking the way instead of actually walking the way. And it can be really easy to kind of have this false sense of like, am I really walking the way of Jesus or am I just checking boxes right now? For others of us who are just fully steeped in the secular world, uh, people who just want nothing to do with Jesus, they don't want us to talk about Jesus, they don't want us to share about Jesus. In fact, they're doing everything they can to make sure that we don't live like Jesus. It's hard to walk in the way of Jesus. This is something that we can connect with, and this is the premise that the Apostle John is writing to the early church that we have here in the letters that we're going to be opening, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. It's another generation, a second generation of Christians since Jesus had been on the earth. Apostle John, uh, right, he was with Jesus. He was one of his disciples, witnessed so many miracles. He was there when Jesus died on the cross. He was there when Jesus rose again. He was there when Jesus ascended into heaven. He was there when Pentecost came. The Holy Spirit filled and ignited the church movement. He was there when persecution happened that ended up spreading the Christian movement all throughout the known world. He was one of the most influential people. And here we are some decades later, and it's hard to be a Christian. Christian. In the city of Ephesus, where John ended up residing, Ephesus is a giant melting pot of all these world religions and faiths. Uh, they did have one primary goddess that they served, the goddess of Artemis, uh, the goddess uh, Diana, this fertility goddess. And, and if you somehow missed the uh, statue, the idol that was made for her in the city, if you somehow were able to miss that, you wouldn't miss the fact that everyone was peddling, selling uh, small versions of her that you could put into your house. And here's what we need to catch up with, with those who were living in the first century, was that it was a Roman-occupied world for them, but when it came to Roman mythology, Rome borrowed heavily from Greek mythology. And this was one thing that was consistent. Did they believe that they were gods? Of course they believed that they were gods. Many of us know about like Zeus and Hercules, all of these gods that they believed in, but there was one thing that could not happen in their mind, that God could never become man. They would never do that. Do things for humanity, sure, but but actually become human? No way. And here you have the second generation of Christians living in a world that says your faith is ridiculous. It's literally a supermarket of religions. You have everything to choose from and you are choosing a religion, you are choosing a faith that says that your God became human? That's nonsense. And so this crept its way into the church because all of a sudden they were questioning whether Jesus really was who he says he is. Maybe Jesus really didn't become man. Maybe Jesus wasn't really God becoming man, fully God, fully man. Maybe it was just like a version or a shadow, lots of different thinking here. And so all of a sudden, there was disunity, there was dysfunction, there was dissension, there was secession, and people were being pulled all this way and that. It was just so hard to keep strong in the faith. And so John is writing these letters to the early church in Ephesus and the surrounding areas, Asia Minor, and he just wants to encourage them. He wants to exhort them. So let's catch up to two things. We're going to jump into the text, but before we do that, just set up uh, what this series is and these letters and who John is before we jump into that. So, some of you will be 
at a party at somebody else's house, or perhaps you're hosting in, I don't know, four hours, five hours. And there will be a person at that party who says something to the extent of, so have the 49ers been to the Super Bowl before? And you will think, okay, next commercial break, we're sitting down, and I'm going to download every bit of football knowledge I can into this person's head. <laughs> How can you not know who this is, right? Some of you are like, uh, that's me. I won't ask that question. Okay, good to know. There were so many people who were not in Jerusalem, who did not see Jesus, who did not hear Jesus, let alone, who's this John guy? And so there were many in the church who were like, who's this John guy? Sit down, let me give you his resume. So let's go over John's resume. Who is the Apostle John? What did he do? What do we know about him? Here's a quick resume of the Apostle John. He grew up in Bethsaida, which is on the northern shores of Galilee, home to other disciples like Philip and Andrew and Peter. One of the sons of thunder, right? One of like the best nicknames in the Bible, the sons of thunder. He and James, his brother, sons of thunder. Uh, and in Mark chapter three, we see them uh, receive this name. Uh, in Luke chapter nine, uh, after the message uh, today, go home, read Luke chapter nine, verses 51 to 55. And this is a highlight of why they were called the sons of thunder. Jesus is headed toward Jerusalem, does something uh, to make people not receive him well. And uh, they are so angry that, <laughs> that these people are not receiving Jesus they're like, this is Jesus. You're not going to receive Jesus. They turn to Jesus and they say, call out to heaven and rain fire on them so they all die. Sons of thunder, all right? These are the kind of guys that they were. And we're going to see, not all of that has really left John, even in his older age. He was an inner circle of disciples. So we, we see Peter, James, and John. We see these three disciples often mentioned together. Many scholars would say that perhaps these three had a closer, uh, unique relationship with Jesus, almost like an inner circle. Uh, they, he witnessed the miracle of the raising of Jairus' daughter in Capernaum. He observed the transfiguration. Now, some of you, you have no clue what I'm talking about. The scriptures are on the screen. Go back, watch the YouTube, press pause, read the stories. They're amazing. John was there. He sat nearest Jesus at the Last Supper, which he was asked to prepare. He was the first disciple to observe, to observe the empty tomb. He was the first disciple to recognize the resurrected Lord uh, in the context of the miraculous catch of the fishes. So back to the empty tomb one, he wasn't the first. He wasn't the first, right? God used women to first tell of Jesus' resurrection, but he was the first disciple to observe that the tomb was empty. He was called the beloved disciple, which is an amazing aspect of John's life. While on the cross, while Jesus was on the cross, Jesus asked John to care for his mother Mary. And this is one of the clues that we have in Scripture that perhaps John had a very unique relationship with Jesus. That Jesus would choose John to take care of his mother. This is no light thing. This is intimate. This is family. John, please take care of my mother. He had significant leadership role in the early church. We talked about that. He was with Peter in the subsequent imprisonment by the Jewish authorities. Again, a wonderful story, Acts 3 and 4. He settled in Ephesus. We know this. Uh, Papias and Arrhenius, these other authors around the time, confirmed that that's kind of where he had settled. We give him uh, authorship 
of the Gospel of John, as well as these three letters. Sometimes we'll call them Johenian epistles or Johannine epistles, uh, epistles, just another word for letters. One, two, three, John, first, second, third, John. We're going to call them all kinds of things over the next, over the next couple months as we're in it. We also give him uh, credit for authorship over the book of Revelation. Here's the deal. John's an important guy. John is a really important guy. And he sees the church in crisis. And he's going to say things like, my dear children, which kind of shows that some scholars would point out that he's much older at this point, he's softened a little bit, but he's still got some of that son of thunder in him. And here's why, because when you read 1 John, he packs a punch. And as we read through this book together, there's going to be some things that we read and we're going to go, wait, what? So it's important to know what we're reading. Now, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. 2nd and 3rd John follow the formula to a T of a letter written to somebody uh, in the first century. And we're going to see that when we come to it. But 1st John is a little bit different. Reading the Bible is a cross-cultural experience. Reading the Bible is a cross-cultural experience. The Bible was not written to us. The Bible was written for us. The Bible was written to different groups of people at different times, spanning over centuries, and it's all written for us because it's been inspired by the Holy Spirit. But it's not to us. So when we read the Bible, this is a cross-cultural experience. We see all kinds of forms of literature and rhetoric. And so when we come to, when we come to 1 John, catching up to the first century Jewish person, the first century Christian who'd be reading this, one of the primary influences still around at that day was the influence of Aristotle. And Aristotle had three forms of rhetoric. And some of you are like, why am I getting a Greek lesson this morning? Just hang on. It's important. First one is judicial, and this is uh, a rhetoric about what's coming up in the future. Uh, We often would see this in the courts, decisions that need to be made that would uh, make a difference about actions that would be taking place. Uh, We see deliberative, and this was just deliberating on things that happened in the past. In other words, you bring your ideas, I'll bring mine, we'll talk, uh, we'll put the two together, and we're just gonna deliberate. Uh, The last one then, is epideictic. Now, besides being really fun to say, epideictic, it's also fun to read. Here's why it's fun to read. Uh, and there's a, there's a definition for us here. It relates to attitudes and values and is intended to deepen and affirm the values already held in the present. Okay, so an epideictic, epideictic <laughs> sorry, an epideictic rhetoric uh, The author was not trying to build up an argument to a point. When we read other letters, Paul writes much in this way. He's building an argument, he's making a case so that we can come to a a really important conclusion. That's not what 1 John is doing in 1 John. Okay, he's not trying to prove a point, he's trying to point to a proof. You see the difference? There's nothing new that the early Christian readers would have learned by reading 1 John. Instead, by using uh, a specific form of rhetoric, he would be throwing gut punches. Some scholars would be like, it's like a stick in the eye. There's this specific kind of rhetoric to get your attention. Because he's trying to point out something that you should already know. 
It uses praise and it uses blame. It's just these contrasting things. So we see lots of contrast. We see light. We see darkness. We see death. We see life. We see the Antichrist. We see Christ. We see Cain and Christ. All these kind of contrasts. He uses all these kinds of things to get our attention. And so when we read 1 John, one of the things that we have to be asking is what is John trying to point us to? What is he trying to bring to our attention? And primarily, it's one of two things or the combination of both. He's trying to point us to Jesus, definitely, or he's also trying to point out the false theology, the false religion, and correct that. And oftentimes when he's doing that, he ends up with just pointing us to Jesus. And we're going to see this. We're going to see it today. In the first four verses, he's pointing us to Jesus. Next week, Pastor Frank is teaching. He's correcting false teaching. But this is what he's doing. He's pointing us to something. In the ancient world, you would see epideictic epideictic, uh, uh, rhetoric in in weddings and in funerals. When you get a group of people who, who all knew the same person, and so it was a very specific form of communication to draw out the highlights of who that person was. And this is what John is doing in this letter. He says, look, walking the way is hard, but there is nothing more important that we can do in our lives. And so he's drawing out these things that we should know and that we should hold on to at the same time contrasting them with what we should push away. So with that, let's go ahead and open up 1 John together. If you're wondering where 1 John is, it's all the way in the back of your Bible. Go to Revelation. In front of Revelation, there's a small letter called Jude. And then in front of that, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. Uh, go ahead and go there, turn to there with these really cool bookmarks. Grab a bookmark, stick it in your Bible so you know where to go. Here's a challenge I have for you, again, because it'll help us understand this letter and because it's so short that it's easy to do at least once a week, make it a personal goal to read through the entire letter. At least once a week. Just read it, start to finish. Just read it. And, and as we unpack it every weekend, and, and for those of you that will be in groups unpacking this, it'll just help you in a deeper way understand exactly what it is that he's pointing us to and, and trying to keep us away from. Here we go. First John 1, 1 through 4 says this. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ, and we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete." One of the words that we have here that's used twice uh, towards the end, verses three and four, is the word fellowship. Fellowship is an interesting word. Most of us would say fellowship is a very churchy word. Uh, Depending on how you grew up in the church, if you grew up in the church, fellowship is one of those words where it was either overused or never used as some uh, trying to to not be too churchy in communication don't use the word at all, but there's kind of confusion. Like, what is fellowship? Uh, fellowship comes from this word, koinonia. And koinonia involves this deep brotherhood or sisterhood of being closely knit together, a group of people who naturally fit, and it refers to the active sharing of activities and privileges of an intimate association with somebody else. An intimate association with somebody else. 
It's koinonia, this, this fellowship. Now, we're not going to be rebranding the word and, and using it uh, moving forward in, in, in all of our stuff, but, but because it's in the text today, we need to talk about the word fellowship. And I think that as we unpack verses one through four, we see that John is trying to communicate something very clearly. There's three things he's trying to communicate as he talks and points us to this fellowship that he's talking about, fellowship with Jesus, fellowship with each other, that becomes crucially important to the early church, that becomes crucially important to us as well. We don't use the word very often. Wherever you're going to go this afternoon, I doubt any of you invited somebody by saying, would you please come and fellowship with us as we watch Taylor Swift's boyfriend open for Usher? You know. Now, maybe the second part's true, but the first part, no one uses that word. No one, no one uses that word, but the Bible uses it. We're going to use it. Fellowship. What is fellowship about? The first thing John points out in verses one through four as he opens this is the requisite for fellowship. What is the requisite for fellowship? What is required? Let's read it again. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the what? The word of life. The life made manifest. We've seen it. He's talking about Jesus. So right away, John spares no expense. He wastes no words. The very first words in his letter to the early church is saying this. Jesus is who he says he is. I've seen it. I've touched him. I've heard him. You may not, but you can believe and you can hear him because I've heard him. This is eyewitness testimony that Jesus is who he says he is. This is one of the greatest uh, apologetic uh, arguments that we have as Christians, that there's so many eyewitnesses account that Jesus was a real person, that he wasn't just a real person, but that he was truly God and truly man and that he lived among us, that God became human. It's incredible. It's incredible. And John spares no expense just making sure everyone knows, look, the the requirement to be in our fellowship, Jesus is who he says he is. Know this, believe this, don't detour from this, don't don't believe these other lies. Jesus is who he says he is. Uh, All are welcome here at Epicos Church. And if you're here and you're in a phase of deconstruction or you're just searching or you're healing, man, we are so glad that you are here. But those of you that have been here a long time know that in order to become what we call a covenant member, in order to become a covenant member, one of the things that you have to do is affirm the belief that Jesus is who he says he is. This is what this fellowship is about. That is the requisite for fellowship. Second one is the role of fellowship. What is the role of fellowship? One of the, one of the beautiful things about how John writes this letter. Just in these first four, vor- the first four verses, he uses uh, a literary form called a chiasm. And uh, for simplicity, all that means is he's using these repetitive words to point towards a central purpose. And you can see it. He says, we've seen, we've heard, we've touched. And then central kind of thing to highlight. And then he backs out, we've heard and we've seen And what does he say? It's found in verse 2. To testify, testify to it and proclaim to you. Testify to it and to proclaim to you. He says, look, not only is the requisite that we believe that Jesus is who he says he is, but that our whole goal, our whole purpose is to make that known. And that's what we should be made known, that's what we should be known by. 
And this is what I love. This is, this is us here at Epicos. Look, at Epicos, we are not about making the name Epicos great. We, we are not about known, uh, being known throughout the city as this, this wonderful church. We're not about being known throughout the state of Wisconsin as this wonderful church. We're, we're about being known for one thing, and that is that we make Jesus known. And if no one ever hears the word epikos, but they're continually hearing about how good Jesus is, that he is who he says he is, that he wants a relationship with you, then amen and amen, we are fulfilling our purpose. Because it's all about him. It's always been about him. And so the requisite is to know that Jesus is who he says he is, and the role of our fellowship is to know that it's all about pointing to him. It's all about giving him glory. It's all about giving him honor. And when people meet us, what my prayer is is that when people meet anyone from Epicos, they think one thing. They think, wow, they serve an awesome God. And John wastes no time. First couple verses, he's like, look, this this is what it's about. He lays it down, packs a punch. So we have the requisite, we have the role. What's the last one? We have the reward. We have the reward of fellowship. There actually is something in it for us, turns out. What does he say? Starting at the end of verse three, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ, and we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. John writes about this as Jesus says it. In the Gospel of John, this completeness of joy, it doesn't mean that joy is done, it means that joy is full. That you have a fullness of joy. A joy that never goes away, a joy that that you can actually give away because it never stops pouring into your life. This is what the church should be. A church should be the place where we find incredible joy. Here's where we're going to be spending the rest of our time. This is, if I can just articulate what I think John is trying to get across in these four verses. If we are unified under Jesus, then we find the joy of Jesus in each other. If we are unified under Jesus, then we find the joy of Jesus in each other. Now, uh, some of you may know this and may be able to speak to it better than I'm about to, but, but last year, Harvard released a study on happiness. Anyone hear about this? It was like one of the longest studies that had ever taken place. We're talking decades. They went across generations, demographic types, socioeconomics, like race, ethnicity. Like they surveyed everybody for decades and have this wonderful study about happiness. Why? Because we're consumed with our own happiness. If you're not, I guess I'm just confessing to you that I'm consumed with my own happiness. We want to be happy. We want to be happy. And we find ourselves saying it to each other, like, ah, get out of that. You're not happy. I want to see you happy. I just want to see you happy. We are consumed with our own happiness. Uh, I'm not qualified to, like, share on this, but here's what I learned from their study. Uh, Privilege had nothing to do with happiness. Wealth had nothing to do with happiness. Ethnicity had nothing to do with happiness. This one surprised me. Health, physical health, nothing to do with happiness. You know what the single greatest qualifier of happiness is that they discovered? The quality of your relationships. The single, great, the single greatest quali- uh, qualifier on whether or not you are going to be a happy person 
had to do with the quality of the relationships in and around your life. Some of us hear that and we start to ponder and we say, actually, I think that is true. Because I've gone through some really hard seasons in life. I've been through some really wonderful seasons of life. But if I have the right people in my life, I'm a happy person. May, may not like all of my circumstances, but I, but I can be happy. And on the other side, like, man, I know what loneliness is. You can have all the money in the world. You know, the best job, the best toys, whatever it is. But if you're lonely, if you don't have the right people in your life, you're not happy. You're not happy. And I'd like to suggest this to keep moving us forward in this conversation as we, as we look at these first four verses. I think that the quality of our relationships comes down to one key question. The quality of our relationships comes down to one key question, and that is this. What is it that's going to keep you in that relationship? Fundamentally, fundamentally, what is it that's going to keep you in that relationship? And we see this at work. We see this true like in the, in the most simplest forms of our relationships. For some of you, like you will be in a group of people that you wouldn't really care to ever see again this afternoon. But the one quality of your relationship, the one factor that's keeping you together is this game. And you want to watch this game. That's the only thing. As soon as the game's done, it's like, uh, see ya. Maybe never. I don't know. Don't really care. You see, you see what I'm talking about? But, but really, fundamentally, this is a question that we have to wrestle with in the deepest parts of our relationships, with our family, with our spouses, with our kids, with our coworkers. Ultimately, what it comes down to, what is going to be that one thing? Nope, we are going to stay, I am going to stay in this relationship. I can tell you this, that whatever you fill that blank with, if any of it resembles pursuing your own happiness, appeasing your own preferences, checking the boxes of the list that you make in your mind, they eat the way I like them to eat, they eat what I like them to eat, they wear the clothes I like them to wear, they like the same shoes, whatever that may be, you will be in a perpetual state of trying to find quality relationships for the rest of your life. Because people will come into your life and they will check all your boxes for a season until they don't. And in this crucible that you've made about what it is to have a quality relationship, all of a sudden it's broken and you're looking for the next person to check all those boxes. You're looking for the next person to appease all your preferences. You're looking for the next person to make you happy. But there's nobody that can make you happy. Nobody here, you put two people in a room, it's just a matter of time before conflict arises. It amazes me when we're just shocked that conflict arises. <laughs> it's like, this is human. This is our de depravity. This is our human nature, that conflict will arise. Eventually, you will fight over what is the best coffee in Milwaukee, whatever it is, I don't know. <laughs> Which, if Colin's here, it's definitely Lake Effect, so we'll just freeze that. Here's the thing. John is saying this. If we fill that blank in with Jesus, there's nothing that can get in our way. And you know, I love this about our church. I love this about Epicos. We have three locations, one church serving one amazing God. 
uh, a couple months ago, I was like, who comes to Epicos, right? I've been here about six months now. And I'm like, where do our people come from? Uh, is there like a nucleus of people that we draw from, whatever it may be? And so everyone that's registered, right, like in different ways, I uh, put it in a program and it kind of plotted out uh, rough points on a map. And I just sat there and I looked at the image. Because what I was expecting, because what is often the case, is there'll be like this really strong core and then it will get lighter as it goes out. But what I saw was that it was almost an even spread all around Milwaukee in the greater area of Milwaukee all the way out to Waukesha. You know why that's so beautiful? You know why that's so wonderful? Because Milwaukee is one of the most segregated cities in the United States. And as a church, we are living proof every day that when we are united under Christ, there is no social construct, there is no economic barrier that can keep us from worshiping together. Amen? Amen. Yeah, praise God. This isn't the beauty of being Epicos. This is the beauty of being united under Christ. And look, when we're united under Christ, we put all of our preferences aside. It's not about who our favorite pastor is, what our favorite campus is, what our favorite seat is, whether or not we get our favorite parking spot, whether or not we get our favorite coffee, whether or not we love the kids' ministry that day, whether or not we thought the person greeting us was happy enough that day. It does not matter. What unites us is Christ. And look, I'm not a prophetic, I'm not trying to be prophetic, but I, I'm a little, I'm like, what's going to happen in 2024? At least politically, we have a lot of division ahead of us. We have a lot of division ahead of us, and who knows what else is going to happen. But here's what I do know is that right now, if we commit to saying, look, the reason I am here is because we are united under Jesus, we are united under the gospel, and it doesn't matter if you vote red, vote blue, it doesn't matter uh, what you wear, what you do, we can come together, we can experience joy, the joy of Jesus that he has in us, we can experience that in each other in a way that will fulfill us, our relationships with happiness that no one else can ever fulfill. No one. This is the beauty of the church. Look, as your pastor, I'm telling you, the deepest scars that I have in my life have come from the local church. And some of you, you feel the same way. Because we are very imperfect people who serve a very perfect God. And this is why again and again and again we have to remember just as John says right from the get-go, he spares no expense. He says we are united under Jesus. And when we're united under Jesus, nothing can separate us. We have a joy that is full. We have a joy that is complete. One of my best understandings of what this joy looks like is a, a subterranean river. Any of you heard of a subterranean river before? Okay, like one person. <laughs> Apparently, it's exactly what it is. It's a river that flows under the earth, subterranean. Here's the cool thing about a subterranean river. It's never affected by anything above it. It could be a drought. It could be lush. It could be winter. It could be fall. It could be spring. It could be summer. It does not matter. Subterranean river, it does not matter what happens above ground. And if you've ever talked to somebody who, who bought a home on the subterranean river, they'll know very quickly because their lawn will always be nice. Their trees will always be full. Their flowers always blooming, no matter what the weather is, because there's a source that never runs dry. This is what, this is what the joy of Jesus is like in our life. 
We know we have the joy of Jesus when we're somehow tapped into this never-ending, constant flowing, fullness of joy into our life that when you look, around, you look at what's happening outside and you're like, I don't get it. Lost my job, I have no money in the bank, uh, maybe my marriage has gone uh, by the wayside, whatever it is, like uh, my kids hate me, I don't know what it is, but just like it's a drought on the outside, and yet there's a, a joyous river, a fullness of joy that's keeping you alive and vibrant, that's making you bloom and grow in a wonderful way. And people are like, how can you do this? And you're like, it's because of Jesus. I'm tapped into his joy. It doesn't matter what happens on the outside. And here's the beauty of the church. The beauty of the church is that when individually we may just be a tree planted by this living water, right? Uh, we are a forest together, breathing new life into this world, a light in the darkness, salt, bringing the joy of Jesus to everybody that we can come across to. And when they look, truly the only reason why you're surviving is because of Jesus. And this is what it is to have this requisite of fellowship, to have the role of fellowship, to have this reward of fellowship. This is what John was trying to tell the early church. Look, be united under Jesus and nothing will break you. Be united under Jesus and nothing can move you. And this is the encouragement that we have today. If you get into trouble with somebody or if you don't like somebody, just sit on the other side of the room. I don't know. Here's the thing is when we're united under Jesus, what it means is that we'll move towards reconciliation. When we're united under Jesus, it means that we'll shake hands with people we would never have the business of shaking hands with. When we're united under Jesus, it means that we will enter into a group. And we, we've done a lot of really cool things with groups this season. I'm excited for them. We got more planned for the fall as we offer classes and all these things. You just get in an environment with people that you would have no business being with except for Jesus. And you be vulnerable with each other and you grow together and you find that there is a mutual joy that cannot be explained in any other way. Any other way. It's why I'm so committed to the church. It's why I believe in the church. It's why I will never give up on the church. Because together we can experience a joy that you can't find anywhere else. I choose you over any other group of people. It's who we are. Last year, I know I'm going a little long. I apologize, but I'm going to keep going. I got one more thing. You guys just get me going. Here we go. So last year, uh, we were on a spring break trip. So one of our values as a family is to have adventure. We want to have adventure. So we're like, okay, where should we go? Drive there, get a you know, cheap Airbnb, whatever it is for the family. And um, Cassie's like, what if we go to Arkansas? I was like, not the state I had in mind. <laughs> and if you're from Arkansas, no offense. You have a beautiful state. I've been there. I might not go back, but God bless you. I love you. I'm glad we're here. We're united under Jesus, okay? United under Jesus. And so we ended up going to Hot Springs, Arkansas, and like we did some wonderful things, some cool stuff, and beautiful botanical gardens that are there, and I went to the whole hot spring thing, drank the boiling hot water, right, that heals you. It doesn't actually heal you, but it's just it's fun, fun, fun stuff to do. And uh, we we're like, let's go, let's go rafting with the kids, not like crazy whitewater rafting, but let's just do like a, a gentle rafting with the kids. And it had been pretty dry, so the river was kind of down. So we drove and um, we uh, got to the place, hopped in the van, right, pulling the trailer with the raft. He drives up river, he drops us off, and he just sets the raft on the riverbed. 
it throws the paddles in the raft and just goes, all right, see ya. And I was like, okay, <laughs> how hard could this be? Get the raft in the river, right? Easy. So I do what every proud man does, and I say that sarcastically. I'm like, all right, kids, get in. I will push us in the river. So sure enough, that didn't work. All right, kids, get out. Uh, we're going to push the raft. We all hop in. And the way that the river was so low, there were just pockets of the riverbed that had water in it, and then it would get really shallow again. And you would have thought that we had never done any kayaking, never done any rafting before, because it was ridiculous. And all I'm going to do to sarcastically describe the environment in that raft was uh, in, uh, loud enthusiasm. Uh, loud enthusiasm, enthusiastic encouragement, right? Um, just edifying each other in wonderful ways that we should never edify each other. And, you know, I'm the one like hopping out of the boat and we're like trying to push and I'm losing my flip-flops and I'm trying to grab them and then grab the boat. Whatever. It's hard. I'm like, what is going on right now? And then I look over to the side and apparently there was some construction work going on because there were construction workers that thought it was better and more fun to watch us struggle than to do whatever job they needed to have done. And every time I looked over, more construction workers showed up <laughs> to the riverbank. And sure enough, phones were coming out, like recording us. I was like, oh no, this is not good. Eventually we got to the river. Walking the way of Jesus is one of the most difficult things that we will ever do. Because many times, the way it feels to us is that there's a way of living that we know we should live, and yet it feels so far away, and no matter what we do, we just feel stuck on the side of the riverbed. Why can't I have that life? Why can't I have those relationships? Why can't I be free from this habit? Why can't I be thriving in my relationships in the way I know that I should be? Why is it so hard to forgive? Why is it so hard to serve? Here's what I know. I know that when we choose to be united in Jesus, whatever, whatever environment or context you may find yourself in life, whether you feel like you were just free-flowing down a river, just enjoying the beautiful scenery that all that Arkansas has to offer, or perhaps maybe you are stuck on the side, and no matter what you do, it doesn't seem to be moving forward, and you feel like people are watching you, making fun of you, telling you to quit, whatever it may be, I know this, I know that I am in the right raft if I am with people who are united under Jesus. And that it doesn't matter whether I feel like there's a lot of progression in my life the way I want it to be or, or whether I feel like I'm in this wonderful season of blessing if I am with a community who wants to know Jesus, who wants to become like Jesus, and who wants to act like Jesus did, and we're just working together, very imperfect people serving a very perfect God, I will choose that raft every single day. And just like in my experience, will a paddle sometimes be, uh, hit me in the face because kids are paddling, you know? Will we hurt each other? Yeah. We're going to hurt each other. Hopefully not intentionally, but because we're broken people. We don't get out of the raft. And we move forward together.
And if we're truly going to walk in the way of Jesus, this is what John wants us to see in these first four verses. John says, if we're going to move forward to walk in the way of Jesus, we have to do it together. And so maybe you're here in this room and you're just like, you know what? I, I don't know where I'm at. I'm just telling you, keep showing up. Keep showing up on the weekend. For those of you that, that are ready to take a next step forward, man, a group is a great environment for you to be in so that you can lean in, so that you can be vulnerable, so that you can be blessed by, being, by realizing that other people are just as broken, if not more broken than you. And together, you're just working towards the same effort to be like Jesus. Some of you are in this room and, and you're still stuck on the, on the first half, which is just like, I don't even know if I can believe Jesus is who he says he is. Keep showing up. Keep pursuing the truth. If you're deconstructing your faith right now, keep showing up. If you're deconstructing your faith, keep pursuing truth. Don't make truth the end, or don't make your deconstruction, your doubts the end goal. Let them, let them lead you to truth. And we're in the raft. We're waiting for you to jump in. But let's do this. Who knows what 2024 20, has to offer, but you know what it does have to offer? It has to offer an incredible world of blessing for everyone who will choose to be united under Jesus and to become more like him. And that's who we're gonna be. And I hope that you join us. Let's pray. So Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. And thank you for the blessing that we can have to just be known by you, to know you, to become like you, and to do it together. So Father, help us to lay down our preferences. Help us to lay down all the things that would hinder us so that we could be unified under you so that we can move forward together. And Father, as we walk the way, let us not do it alone. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.